Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. Thank you for coming. Um, Terror in the City of Champions is my seventh book, and like all of them, it originates to some degree in my childhood growing up in Warren. And when I was a, a boy in the early 1970s, uh, my father, who grew up on the east side of Detroit near City Airport, would invite all of his siblings, he came from a large Polish Catholic family, back to our home for the holiday celebration. And at Christmas time, there'd be you know, five or six of his brothers, his sister, family, and they'd in the basement with the lights twinkling on the wall and the smell of kielbasa and kraut wafting on the air. They start reminiscing about their childhood in Detroit, which took place in the 30s. And I was this sports-obsessed little boy. Uh, and in 1970, 71, you know, the Tigers, they were mediocre, the Pistons weren't doing anything, the Red Wings were, you know, Gordie Howe's days were almost done, and the Lions, well, you know, never in our lifetime, but, and here they would talk about this glorious time in the mid-1930s when they were teenagers, and the Detroit sports teams were unparalleled. You had the Detroit Tigers in October of 1935 winning their first world championship ever. A month later, you had the Detroit Lions winning their first NFL title. That spring, the Red Wings winning their first Stanley Cup ever. And at the same time as Joe Lewis is the uncrowned, undefeated, quick on the rise, you know, future boxing champion of America. And I used to just be so jealous because the teams we had were just so average by, by comparison. And so I grew up hearing those, those sports stories, the city of champions area, which is what my dad referred to it and what much of the country referred to Detroit as, the city of champions during that, that period. But there was a darker story that the, the uh, the eldest of the uncles, my uncle Clem, he would share this darker story. And he was a very radical, progressive young man. He was hung out with other artists and writers, and, and that was kind of you know, he, how he viewed himself as a bohemian spirit. And he would talk about the time when he, when he thought he was gonna be killed. And it occurred in, in 1936, in the spring when he and his brother Bucky and two of their friends were walking in the black entertainment district of Detroit. So my uncle, his brother, two friends, they're walking uh, in the black entertainment district, Paradise Valley, this car pulls up beside them and this is my uncle who was very dramatic retelling the story. He said these, these two guys were in the car, it was an unmarked car and they start questioning, what are you doing here? You don't belong here, go back to your old neighborhood, you're up to no good. And if you know my uncles, particularly my uncle Bucky, both of these gentlemen are deceased, of course, he was a boxer and he started to take offense and the situation grew into a confrontation till the guys claimed they were Detroit police officers, but they weren't in uniform. They pull out guns and they order them into the back of the car. And my uncle in the retelling would say, I thought this was the beginning of the end. I thought it was the Black Legion and we were gonna wind up dead in a ditch. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of the Black Legion. 
but if you do any research in mid 1930 on mid 1930s Detroit and you look at old newspapers, you'll see Black Legion uh, headlines plastered all over the place. If I had walked in here and asked you to name a 1930s criminal outfit or, or gang in Detroit, most people would have said the Purple Gang, you know, the Jewish rum runners. But the Black Legion wasn't in it for profit. They were kind of like the Ku Klux Klan, only more violent. And uh, they, so they, they like to say they opposed every ism except Americanism. They were against Catholicism and Judaism and, and Negroism and Unionism and Socialism and Communism and Progressivism and, and against Roosevelt, FDR. They were um, co-opted into the anti-union movement in Detroit. It was estimated at the time that half of the departments in the Rouge plant were controlled by the, the Black Legion. But it was a secret society and you could be killed if you would reveal uh, your membership. And the way people became members is a friend <laughs> would invite you to a party or a barbecue or, or some kind of outing uh, out in the woods. Um, and there were gatherings in Warren and St. Clair Shores and in Detroit and, and elsewhere. And you would go to this event and at some point if it were indoors, some point in the night after they had confirmed obviously that you were male, that you were Protestant, and that you had some of the same political thoughts in terms of what qualified as Americanism, the lights would turn out and soon the, the, a red light would come on or a spotlight or a, a torch and you would find that you were surrounded by men wearing these robes because until that point they would have been ordinary guys in street clothes. And you would be told with a gun pointed at your heart or your head that you had heard too much at this point not to become a member of the Black Legion. You were now gonna take the initiation. And you would take the oath, the Black Oath as they called it, agreeing that should you ever tell anybody about this organization, your brains would be spilt, your guts would be split open, you would be killed. Um, the only former Black Legionnaires, they were told, were six feet under. And, um, and so for most, most people, I like to think most of us in this room, if we were caught in this situation, we'd think, well, I wanna, these guys have guns pointed at me. I'm gonna do what it takes to get out of here alive and I'm just never gonna go to another meeting. And, and there were people who tried to do that and some of them would find out a few weeks later that the legionnaires in street clothes would come to their house and start encouraging them to come to the meetings and if still they didn't, uh, they might find themselves one night pulled off the streets stripped from the waist up, taken out to the woods, tied to a tree and lashed with a, a whip as punishment or something worse. It's estimated that the Legion, which operated in three states, Michigan, Ohio, and uh, Indiana primarily, uh, killed in southeast Michigan in the early to mid 1930s about 50 people. Many of the deaths were faked to look like suicides. So most of us, I like to think, would have just figured, we're gonna find a way to get out of this, we're just gonna stop going, I just need to get out of here alive. And, uh, but for others, like this gentleman, who's one of the main characters in the book, the book is nonfiction, so everything's true based on FBI files, based on court records, other coverage. His name is Dayton Dean. And as he's going through this, this is so much more exciting than his, than his ordinary life. He, uh, his initiation was out in Romeo. And this is just thrilling, and this was a big one. There were hundreds of people at this thing. Some of their confabs had thousands of people at it. 
The membership was estimated in the area of about 100,000. And Dayton Dean, as he's taken the initiation, to him this sounds like a movie or a radio serial, and he's into it. Sounds like an adventure. His day-to-day -day life is rather mundane. He's a pipe wrapper. Uh, any of you been down to Fort Wayne in southwest Detroit? Just down the street, there's the Mustersky Power Plant. Still exists. That's where he worked, and some of uh, some of his uh, some of the guys who brought him into the Black, Black Legion. So. He's kind of a thuggish guy anyways, and he likes the idea of this. He likes, uh, you know, he likes shooting guns. He, he was involved uh, on the Navy's behalf in a race ride in Washington, D.C. in the, you know, about a decade earlier. So he, to him, this is an adventure, and he rises quickly. He thinks he can make his mark in the Black Legion. He becomes a member of two regiments. There are about 13 regiments in southeast Michigan uh, of uh, up to 1,600 men each. And uh, he becomes part of the assassination squad, where he's assigned the assassinations. Uh, in his case, he's not successful in all of them, but he's assigned the assassinations of a mayor, the mayor of Ecorse, a newspaper publisher in Highland Park, a civil, well, they didn't call it civil rights back then, but uh, a progressive attorney back in that era, a Jewish attorney. It's helpful to uh, think of, if, if we just back up a little bit, in terms of what Detroit was like, at this point, so the Black Legion flourishes during the heart of the Depression, but if we back up to the 1920s, 1920s is a boom period in Detroit. And most of the historic skyscrapers we think of when we think of Detroit, the Penobscot, the Guardian, the Fisher Building, um, they were built in the 1920s because money was just pouring into Detroit. Uh, the Olympia Arena was built then, the, the main branch of the, the library, the, the DIA as we know it, the Masonic Temple, all 1920s. And then the market crashes in 29, the economy is devastated. Uh, Detroit by 33 has the highest unemployment rate in the country, 40%, 45% of the people are out of work. And this makes the, the environment very ripe for the Black Legion because they have job connections in the factories. So those of us who are sports fans romanticize what sports mean, mean to us. And so we tend to think that during our down times, our sports teams can lift our spirits. Well, in 1933, if you're, if you're looking for the Tigers to lift your spirits, it's not gonna happen. This is, this is the owner of the Tigers, Frank Nathan. And the ballpark is named for him. The ballpark later becomes Briggs Stadium, Tiger Stadium. But Frank Naven is a gambler. He's a horse, uh, bets on horses, likes to play cards, and he owns the Tigers. He's a skinflint when he owns the Tigers. And his attendance in 1933 has plummeted to a third of what it was the year prior, or a couple of years prior. And he needs some way, he's hurting financially, to bring people into the seats. So first he, he thinks, I'm gonna try to, uh, hire Babe Ruth to manage the team. He's near the end of his career. That doesn't work out, and so the next best thing he can do is come up, come up with is to bring in, as manager, and back then you had uh, managers who often were players, the best catcher in baseball from, from the Philadelphia A's, uh, Connie Max, Mickey Cochran. And so Mickey Cochran comes into town and he's this uh, fiery individual, very intense, a leader of young men, spirited, but um, you know, you, it's difficult to psychoanalyze somebody you know, 80 years later, but I have no doubt after talking to his family and people who knew him that 
if he were alive today, he'd be medicated for his moods because he was manic. He, was, he had extreme depression, sometimes just locking himself away for multiple days after a, a difficult loss, sometimes losing it in terms of uh, dealing with, with people, uh, had anger issues, but he could inspire people. And so he comes into spring training in 1934 with this team that had performed miserably the year before, and he's won already the World Series with Connie Mack's team. He's the star, one of the stars of the game. Baseball kids grew up knowing his name. And he starts telling these young guys, you got what it takes. I've been on a winning team. We can go all the way. And some of the veterans are rolling their eyes, but some of the younger guys are buying into it. And sure enough, that 1934 season, they take off. And they're just playing tremendously. And the team represented Detroit in a great way because Detroit, you know, most of the people living in Detroit did not, were not born there at this time. People were coming from the South and from other states for jobs. And so, it was a real mixture, a real potpourri. And so the Tiger team, other than it not being racially diverse because it, you know, Major League Baseball had not reintegrated at this point, it represented all sorts of different backgrounds. So you had a guy like Tommy Bridges, who was one of the star pitchers, whose father was a surgeon, and he was expected to be something similar. And, and you had a guy like... Uh, G. Walker, who was the outfitter, who was a southern boy, and you know, you know, probably agreed with some of what the Black Legion stood for in terms of racial relations, and a big loudmouth. And he had one of the utility players, Flea Clifton, who was his uh, mother, his dad had died uh, in the war, the First World War, and his mother had been murdered, and he was grew up on the streets of Kentucky and in Ohio, living be behind other people's garages, and so. It was a very diverse place. But one of the oddities was is that the Black Legion guys, many of them were also fans of the Tigers during this spectacular 34 season. And I found evidence that they actually scheduled some of their crimes around it so it didn't interfere with the Tigers' schedule because the Tigers were, were doing so fabulously. Yeah, we can take that guy out and work him over, but let's just wait till after the game, you know. Why would it be so unusual, for those of you who might know a little bit of Detroit sports history, why would it be so unusual for a team, or for, for guys who have similar feelings to the Klan in terms of the groups they oppose to be rooting for the Tigers in 1934, 35? So you have Hank Greenberg uh, in his early 20s, the power hitting first baseman, who within a couple years will be probably the most famous Jewish non-entertainer in America. and. Uh, this is at the same time uh, that uh, next to him is the second baseman, uh, Charlie Geringer, who I like to say is the, was at the time the third most famous Catholic in Detroit. Probably the Bishop uh, Gallagher at that time would have been the second. And the most famous Catholic is the guy, the radio priest from Royal Oak, who is broadcasting from, from from the Detroit area to an audience nationwide, 10, 20, 30 million people, who's also one of the most anti-Semitic figures, or will become. In 1934, you're not really seeing it that way. He's, he's becoming political. But if you go down Woodward, I think some of you know who I'm talking about, but if you go down Woodward 12 Mile, you see that huge crucifixion tower. It was built with the, the mail that was coming in to the radio priest, Father Coughlin. And 
Cogman was becoming increasingly political at this point, and uh, Royal Oak, that, that church, the one that's there now wasn't the one that was there in 34. That one was, depending on whose story you believe, possibly torched, um, but it burned down. But anyways, people are pilgrimaging to that site from across the country to come to the church that the famous radio priest uh, is always talking about, the little flower, uh, 12 in Woodward. And so he receives more mail in, during this period than anybody in the country, including the President of the United States, so much so that they actually built the Royal Oak Post Office to, to handle all the mail coming. And he's got a paid staff of dozens of uh, women, and well, they were women, uh, answering his mail. So he's the most famous, but the third most famous is Charlie Geringer. And so you have Charlie Geringer in this photo. You have the th three of the f four players from that team who would go on to the Hall of Fame. And so general baseball fans will have heard of Hank Greenberg and Charlie Geringer and a guy they traded for who had also won a World Series somewhere else, Goose Goslin. What do you know about, notice about all their last names? Greenberg, Geringer, Goslin. G-men, so at that time, every kid wanted to grow up and be a G-man because the G-men had brought down Babyface Nelson and John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde and they were dealing with Capone. And so the G-men, of course, are government men, right? There are movies, t radio series about the government men, the G-men. And so the Tigers give their batters, their, those three hitters, the nickname G-men and draws the attention of director of the FBI J. Edgar Hoover. So the, those three, the G-Men Tigers, uh, uh, got to visit the FBI headquarters and learn about what happened to the Lindbergh baby and such things. The Tigers were drawing that kind of attention, national attention. Now, Henry Ford plays into this story partly because of a lot of his political feelings. You probably have heard that uh, he was uh, quite the anti-Semite himself and that Hitler was a fan of his and, you know, and actually had uh, you know, something he had said on a sign in his office back in Germany. But the guy who fulfilled his darkest wishes, who was his right-hand man, the guy who headed up his service department, was the guy on the right-hand side, a guy named Harry Bennett. Harry Bennett. Great. This is wonderful. Uh, so Harry Bennett uh, was the, the guy who was tasked basically with two things, keep the unions out of Ford and uh, keep Henry's grandsons from being abducted like the Lindenburg baby. And so he, he aligned himself with the organized crime. He used to be on the parole board for the Michigan, state of Michigan, so they would parole criminals into his service and he would use them in his service department, which was really a, a vast uh, group of spies within the Ford organization and thugs and they were involved in the Battle of the Overpass and other things. Harry Bennett, just as a side note, uh, one of his houses still stands uh, between Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, uh, along the river there. It was a home that Henry Ford had built for him. As you no doubt are aware, uh, the, the times of uh, trying to form the unions, there's a lot of violence on both sides, and, and so uh, you know he was responsible for violence, and he was also the target of violence. And so this home was built as a mini castle with gun turrets that were sometimes used. Uh, they had uh, something that uh, was described as dungeon-like in the basement. He had uh, cages for pet tigers and lions that he kept. And he 
he had uh, tunnels that would lead out, escape tunnels under this house, as well as the one that he later had in Gros Eel. Um, and some of the steps actually just give you a sense of it. Uh, the, the cement steps in one of these back hidden areas, downstairs area, were, weren't designed symmetrically. You know, steps are normally six inches apart or whatever they are, six, eight inches. These were uneven, asymmetrical. So if you were chasing somebody in the dark and were not aware that the steps were not balanced, you know, you could tumble, you could be discouraged. So let me back up. A lot of people suspected once the Black Legion was revealed, because it's a secret society, once it was outed, a lot of people thought this was just too much of a, too well organized to be run by the guy who claimed to be the head of it, this electrician out of uh, Lima, Ohio, Bert Effinger. A lot of people thought there were people like Harry Bennett who were the puppet masters behind it pulling the strings. Uh, but this is the guy who, uh, who often appeared at the, the huge um, gatherings they would have in Lake Orion and outside of Pontiac and in Jackson and Adrian. And uh, the hat, actually, they have a copy, they have, not a copy, they have one of the original uniforms over at the Ruther Library in Detroit. So I got to you know, play around with that. It was a handmade, you could tell. Anyway, Effinger, um, like to say that they had membership in the millions, which they didn't, he was exaggerating. But even though he was the head of the organization, uh, he would never spend a day in jail. And uh, when I was tackling this, this project, you know, um, I've done, as I mentioned, seven books. And so depending on what period, period you're covering, you're, you hope to interview people who were primary sources. But everybody who was part of this is dead unless there's a Black Legion member who you know, is in a rest home somewhere and is, you know, 102 or something. I couldn't track the person down. But FBI files, I went through 900 plus pages of FBI files, and it was interesting to see as people were trying to get the FBI involved in the investigation how J. Edgar Hoover wanted no part of it. One of the targets was Maurice Sugar, and he was one of the, the folks that Dayton Dean was assigned to, to bump off. The Black Legion uh, would meet at a variety of places, sometimes small churches, sometimes uh, larger halls. Uh, but they could meet in Oddfellows halls, they could meet in fields, they, they met in all sorts of places. The Stone Chapel was where this next guy, William Guthrie, became a member, first against his will. And then he started to like, you know, you know he got involved in it. And then he got involved in a way that he didn't want even more deeply. What had happened is one of the local leaders of the, the Black Legion had come to his house, and he was a guy who, they called him Doc, he wasn't a doctor, he used to do massages in his basement, and the, the air in his basement was very humid. And when the Black Legion, uh, the local colonel was visiting, he started to get an idea in his head, and it was, um, boy, this would be a great place to, to manufacture germs. And um, he wanted to use Guthrie's basement to manufacture typhoid germs that they could inject into the cheese and milk deliveries of Jewish and black neighborhoods. Fortunately, that plot never came to be. Um, many, many of their bombings and murders did. So 
when you're doing a book like this, the danger is that you end up living with all these negative <laughs> personalities. And so I was glad that I had the light part, uh, the athletic part to kind of blend it with. So if you're, if you're living in that era and you're, hope, you're looking for something to feel good about, uh, one of the things you could feel good about in the Detroit area was, was this guy, Joe Lewis, um, who had not only black fans, but also white fans. My dad used to talk, my uncles used to talk about when they were, uh, were young men, that you, you didn't even need a radio with you. On fight night, you could just walk down a Detroit street and the fight would be coming out of windows emanating from houses. And so Joe Lewis was this young Detroiter who, who was managed in a such way that he would be nothing like the last African-American heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson, who was an in-your-face uh, touting opponents, who caused you know, his success, uh, fired up uh, race uh, riots in various cities. Jack Johnson you know, had the gold tooth, and he was dating underage white women and taking young girls across, uh, across uh, state lines. Well, Joe Lewis, they manufactured his image. He was a very decent guy, but they even built on that. You know, if you saw pictures of Joe Lewis, he was often with his mother, who was back in Detroit. He was never to, one of his rules, his managers had, never to be seen alone with a woman in, in public, uh, never ever be seen with a white woman, except in a large group. Um, frequently pictures of him from camp would be him reading his Bible, things of that nature. And Joe Lewis, uh, you know, he, though he had been born elsewhere, he grew up in Detroit. The Brewster Center, which is in horrible shape right now, but still exists, was where he uh, trained as a, as a young boxer before he went into the Golden Gloves. And so you could look to Joe Lewis and maybe feel good about um, you know, progress we were making racially in America because you had white people rooting for him as well. And you could look also to this day in 1935, May of 1935, when this, uh, this athlete from Ohio State University comes in to Ann Arbor, to Ferryfield, and has what is regarded as one of the most fabulous days in track history within one hour's time, he breaks three world records and ties a fourth one. And a year later, he's gonna become internationally famous. So, there were all sorts of people watching that day with, with Jesse Owens breaking the records. One of them was a guy who had been an All-American center with the, the U of M football team. And decades later, would become president of the United States. And one of the things he would do is bring Jesse Owens into the into the White House as a way of honoring him. So you could look at that day if you had been out in Ann Arbor and feel, you know, this was a, an integrated audience rooting on this, this guy. So the next day, of course, this performance is gonna be headlines all over the place. But if you were looking, you know, if this were a feel-good moment in terms of racial relations, it didn't last long. Because later that night, that just about 15, 20 miles away, there was a group of black legionnaires who were meeting. And a day earlier, the leader of the group had, had come up with this idea. He, he wanted to know what it, would, what it feels like to, to murder a black man just for the sake of it, for the fun of it. So they had lured this uh, World War I vet, Silas Coleman, out to the Pinckney area, out to Rush Lake. And Dayton Dean and another guy had driven him out there, had told him, it was nighttime, uh, 
we're going to help you collect some back money you owe for construction work you had done, some day work. And so they, they went out there and Dayton Dean, you know, leaves Silas in the car with a, one of the other legionnaires, goes behind the cottage at Rush Lake and tells the local colonel, uh, you know, he's here. And that guy announces to the rest of the group, we're going to have a sub fun. We got this, I'm sure they didn't use the word, uh, you know, but he used uh, you know, an unkind word. We got this guy who beat up a black, beat up a white kid and we're gonna teach him a lesson. Let's get your guns, guys. And so they all drive out to the Ford Mill Pond and Silas Coleman, it's near midnight and he's told the guy that owes him money is out on the, the pond fishing and, and he begins to suspect something. And next day, they, you know, he takes off, but they hunt him down and kill him find his body riddled with bullets, and the Detroit police don't really want to investigate this crime out in Pinckney, and they just attribute it without any knowledge, really, to black-on-black -black violence, and that's the end of it, until a year later, when the murder that is gonna undo the Black Legion is committed. It involves a Catholic guy named Charlie Poole, who is uh, a WPA worker a couple days a week, uh, kind of, having a rough time, as a lot of people are in this era, in 1936 in Detroit. But he's an excellent baseball player, a fan of Mickey Cochran, and back in that day, the industrial leagues were very competitive, and you couldn't get a job sometimes as a ringer on the baseball team. You could get a job in the factory if you were a good baseball player. And so, one of the, the local Black Legion leaders, and this was a sign of how just uh, scattered the Black Legion was. You know, in, in some respects, you know, they knew what they stood for, but sometimes they would use their power for personal vendettas. And, and this was one of those cases where one of the top Legionnaires in this local regiment in Southwest Detroit was in love with the guy, or was in love with the woman that this guy had married. Uh, she was a good Baptist girl who'd grown up with the other guy and they'd you know, the Baptist girl and the Legionnaire had been friends when they were kids down in Tennessee, and, and he figured if they could get this guy out of the way, he'd have a shot with Becky Poole. Um, and, uh, and so the local leader hatches a, a, a false story that they tell. Uh, this is a young father, he has two kids, his wife had just given birth to their youngest one. Becky's in the hospital having delivered their youngest child. And uh, what, what he tells, what the Legion leader tells the group that's gathered at Finletter Temple is that there's this Catholic guy who has beat his uh, pregnant wife so badly, she's in the hospital, she lost the baby, and you know, what are we gonna do? And he riles up the crowd, you know, let's take him for a one-way ride, let's hang him, let's beat him. And, the story they've hatched, though, how are they going to lure this guy? And so the local leader had earlier, uh, knowing that he was a ball player, gone out to the, the flat where he lived and told him, you know, we, uh, we've got this spot for you on the Turnstead manufacturing team, and we're going to have a baseball meeting tonight, and I'll pick you up at this time. And so sure enough, he's waiting in a bar. They pick him up. They have a caravan of cards that drive him over near the Rouge plant in Dearborn. And, and uh, he winds, winds up dead, uh, assassinated, killed, left, to the, uh, left in a gully, uh, left on gully road in a ditch. Uh, and the next day, so often the Black Legion murders, there'd be like a, um, 
a union application tucked under their body or there'd be a weapon left by to make it look like an, uh, you know, it had been suicide um, or their body would turn up in the river, the Detroit River. Uh, in this case, police investigated because, and that would be enough for the police to just figure it was, uh, it was a battle within the union or something and they'd just leave it alone. But in this case, because he looked a little bit like one of the Purple Gang members, they, they, uh, they, they fingerprinted him, sent his prints off to FBI and DC and a match came back. He wasn't uh, a gangster. There had been a bank robbery a few days earlier. It wasn't that guy. But they had started this investigation, and within, uh, within uh, two weeks' time, the Black Legion's vow of secrecy begins to unravel as more and more guys are brought in. And suddenly, the hysteria starts when it comes out that there's this organization in this multi-state area that's been killing people, and um, the secret society. And suddenly, women are learning that their husbands or their sons are members of this organization, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly, because they were told, if, you know, we'll, we'll kill you if you tell your, your wife, you know. It's interesting to me how certain aspects of, of history evaporate and others get celebrated. We romanticize, for example, the, pur the Purple Gang, but very few people have heard of the Black Legion in the talks I've done. There's, you know, sometimes somebody's heard of it, uh, but it's much more obscure. And back in its day, it was a big deal. There were a couple movies, there were books, there were radio series. Um, I could ramble on for a while, uh, but I'm gonna end there. Thank you for, for coming out, it was my pleasure. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org.